0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with pianist, jazz cat, and music visionary Brian Haas. He is the leader of the jazz force known as the Jacob Fred Odyssey, right out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. These days, he is in a supergroup known as Nola Ted, and they are gearing up for a February 2016 album release and a subsequent tour around the United States. Brian has spent his career pushing jazz into very cool, inventive quadrants, and he's marshaled a very devoted legion of fans. He's a deeply impassioned cat that loves living, playing music, John Coltrane, and constantly evolving. Dig this interview, my friends.
1: Hey, before
2: we start, I just want you, I just want to lay this out for you real quick. My mother-in-law got me the vinyl of Stay Gold probably last year. And I got to tell you, I had a Miles Davis kind of blue moment with this. Your sound blew me away. I've been doing this for a long time. And when I heard this coming through my speakers, I just want you to know it was a transformative music moment for me. So I've I've been very excited to talk to you about the new venture you have and Jacob Bread and what's going on with your music brain. It's it's, a, it's an honor and it's a pleasure.
1: Oh, cheers. Thank you, brother. Yeah, that stay gold record is very, very unique.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful cascade of sounds. It just, I don't know, it's just kind of, it it expands and does its thing so well and, and it just has not gotten old. I've played this thing over and over again. So, um, but let me go ahead and start off here without any further ado. I know that Nola Ted is kind of the, the, the thing that's on your radar these days. So give me an idea along with that venture. What's been going on with you lately?
1: At the end of last year, Jacob Fred, uh, finished up well, it was pretty much a a, a five year push, five or six year push that really started with that Stay Gold record. That Stay Gold album took off in a really beautiful way, and and uh, led to multiple you know tours all around the United States and Europe. That Stay Gold record was really fun. I'm glad you mentioned that because that really started a new chapter for the band. We put out a little EP right before that to sort of see if the quartet concept was going to work. That EP was called One Day in Brooklyn. And we found that it was really working. The band was hitting. And Stay Gold really took off in a nice way and and, uh, garnered a nice buzz and and led to some some nice energy on the road and We've, you know, after Stay Gold, we put out the Race Riot Suite, uh, and then we did a live record in Denver called Millions that we put out for Record Store Day two years ago that sold out, and and then we did Worker, and then we released the Battle for Earth last year. So Jacob Fred has been pushing really, really hard since Stay Gold, and um, last year I was lucky enough to record another. Duet album with Matt Chamberlain. So that will come out in September, late September, and Matt Chamberlain and I will tour that. And uh, I don't know if you know Matt Chamberlain, he's a great drummer. And then the Nola Tet thing uh, comes out February uh, 26th. So this spring I'll be touring the Nola Tet and then in the fall I'll be touring with uh, Matt.
2: So you basically, with Nola Tet you guys were on the same touring circuit for 20 years. Johnny, James, Mike, And you, talk to me a little bit about how everything, the Cosmos, kind of came together for you all to do
1: this and and how it started. It's so funny. James and Johnny have been my favorite rhythm section since the 90s. Jacob Fred Fred started hitting New Orleans around 96, 97. And I remember the first time we went down there, some of our friends were like, oh, you have to come here, Vidakovich, Vidakovich, Vidakovich." And I was just like, man, I've never heard of this guy. Who is this guy? And and we uh like our very first time in new orleans as a band we were down there for about two weeks during jazz fest playing every single night and we would go play our shows and then we'd go find johnny vodakovich's gig and so i've been just a huge fan of of johnny for almost 20 years and johnny is one of the most melodic uh drummers i've ever heard in my entire life i mean he you know it's everything he does has melody to it everything he does has this incredible phrasing i mean and he phrases in some ways more like a pianist than a drummer um and johnny is you know the teacher of brian blade teacher of stanton moore he's just he's a super important part of the tradition for some reason every time we would go down there we would end up spending time with him either at the gig or at his house, I mean, very quickly, Johnny and his wife started inviting Jacob Fred over to their house to barbecue, to hang out, to talk. And I mean, since the early 2000s, Deborah and Johnny have been sort of like my musical parents in a way. So the connection is, it's way beyond just musical. It's, it's, uh, you know, Johnny has become family to myself and the members of Jacob Fred. and And his right hand man is James Singleton. And so, very quickly, we started spending a lot of time off the stage with Johnny and James, just as maestros, as, as heroes. And um, so the, the Nolotet thing happened really organically and kind of on accident. I mean, the other guys in the band already had a trio called Devious, and it's just spelled D-V-S, Dylan Vidakovich Singleton. And a couple years ago, um, they had some special guests, fall through for Telluride Jazz Festival, and I live in Santa Fe, so I'm only like four or five hours from Telluride, and I was hanging out here in the summer, and I'd been on the road for a long time. and was just relaxed and enjoying myself, and this would have been Telluride Jazz Fest two years ago, and I got a funny call from Mike Dillon where he was like, hey, we had some miscommunications. Is there any way you could come do like three days in a row at Telluride Jazz Fest with myself and Johnny and James?" And I was just blown away because I love that trio. All those guys are heroes of mine. I mean, I first saw Mike Dillon play when I was 17, 18 years old at a club in Tulsa when he was touring with a band called Billy Goat. Yeah. I mean, and I came into the club as a teenager and really just a classical musician, and there was this naked dude on stage playing timbales and screaming and rapping, and I was just like, whoa, I am definitely playing old white guy's music. Um, you know, just music written by dead guys. You know, I I came into the club and it was sold out and the band's naked and Mike D's wife at the time was dancing around half naked and I was just like, "Um, I think I need a a career change, you know, and and, and really seeing Mike Dillon playing with Billy Goat and playing this weird new take on jazz mixed with punk rock, I mean, it's part of why I started Jacob Fred. I don't really think I would have started Jacob Fred at age 19 if not for having seen Mike Dillon the year before. So to get a call from Mike asking me to come to Telluride was obviously a no-brainer. I mean, I've toured on and off with Mike as part of this band, as part of the Mike Dillon band or part of Harry Apes. Um, he's hired me to do little stints or, like, bigger gigs. So I went up to Telluride. I did the shows, and people were blown away. And the guys in the band, you know, Johnny, James, and Mike, were – into it enough that they decided to turn their trio into a quartet so that's really how it happened especially the main stage gig at Telluride I mean the audience was flipping and so was the band I mean the connection was really really obvious I think one of my strengths is that I can sort of find spaces to fill that other people aren't filling and so I brought something really different than what Mike was bringing and and then after that we were all hanging out in the green room backstage getting in trouble for smoking because like there was like a kid's big band coming on next or something and all the parents were milling around and we're celebrating our set with some legal libations cuz it's Colorado and <laughs> and the guys and the guys are just like, "Hey, why don't we keep doing this?" And I was like, "Really? You want to add me to the trio and Mike and James and Johnny just kind of decided right there in the green room. They were like, yeah, that was different. We just did something new. We did something brand new. We need to keep doing that. So I showed up in New Orleans like six months later in January, and we uh, played five shows in a row and then made the album. So if you go to nolatet.com, a lot of the record, or at least three of the singles are up on the website, for either in video form or in listening form, so... But, I mean, it happened really organically. I mean, I've been hanging out with those guys for a long time, mostly just as a fan, you know. But Mike and I are about 10 years apart in age, and so Mike Dillon has hired me a lot to go out with him. And and Jacob Fred and the Mike Dillon Band have done uh, at least two full tours together where we're playing every single night. So Mike and I have a very, very close uh, business relationship and personal relationship. Right on.
2: Well, speaking of age, you got Johnny in his 70s, James in his 60s, Mike's in his 50s, and you're in your 40s. That's a lot of musical wisdom going on right there.
1: Yeah, and that's a little bit of a publicist, a little bit of a publicist typo there. Um, Johnny, whenever people were asking Johnny what his age was, he wouldn't tell anybody. Okay. And for the press release, and James Singleton said 70-ish because I don't think James knows, but Johnny. Johnny's wife called me, and he's actually sixty-six. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: that's still a lot of years combined for all of you guys. <laughs> yeah. And all of the years that you've seen, how has that? So, you, so it did mention that this album was recorded in one day, and it was all first or second takes with no overdubs. Was all of that age and wisdom? Did that just lend you guys <laughs> sitting there killing it right off the get-go?
1: Well, yeah, and we were coming off of five shows, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so Johnny Vidakovich was pissed off. We were recording on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I'm telling you, that session was two and a half hours. That's, I mean, it was two and a half hours of actual tracking, at the wow. max. I mean, we were in that room like that. That those those studios in New Orleans are amazing. And because it was Vidakovich's first time in there, the owner of the studio had 15 interns waiting on us so we showed up and did absolutely nothing, and the whole thing was ready to go in like 35, 40 minutes. I've never, ever seen such a pro crew in my entire life. Wow. (laughs) The guy that that owns that studio is a Russian guy who's extremely strong and just even-keeled, very powerful presence. And I mean, we showed up. There were 15 youngsters there, loaded in all our gear, had everything set up. All lines run, all mics placed, 40 minutes max. Wow. And then they all take off, and then the camera crew shows up. They nailed it. I mean, James and Johnny have so much respect in New Orleans, it's really hard to even communicate it. You have to see it firsthand. Like, they're treated – they are treated like – Real deal rock stars in that town. I mean, the awe. I mean, nobody was talking. Nobody was saying anything. Anytime anybody said anything, it was, uh, Mr. Singleton, um, can I? Uh, Mr. Badakovich can I? I mean, I was completely ignored. They just like set up a nine foot piano and like, here you go, asshole. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, to see how James and Johnny are treated in that town is truly inspiring. It's yeah. incredible. I've never. <laughs> I mean, they might as well be, you know, just huge, 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 huge rock stars. I've never, I don't even think rock stars get treated like that in New Orleans. Like, James and Johnny are so revered in that town, you know? So that session was super, super short and pro. It was like, we did a bunch of stuff, and then Johnny just stood up from the drum kit, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go home now. Thanks, guys. And we were like, hey. And my like, Helen and I were both like, hey, no, Johnny, we, we've got a few more to do. And Johnny's like, no, no, no. That's we just made a record. i I know when the record's made and the record's made. And and Heidi and I are like, but dude, we just set up all this fucking gear, and I mean, we just did, we just set up all this stuff, and like, why don't we just play some more? And Johnny's like, no, I don't got to take that. I got nothing. I got nothing. And so that was the record. I mean, Johnny just stood up and walked away.
2: That's awesome.
1: You can't. I mean, Mike and I each like offered up one sentence, and Johnny's like, no. No. <laughs>
2: That's awesome, man. That's a great story.
1: So the album comes out on the 26th.
2: You got two shows in New Orleans on February 28th. You go on the road through Atlanta, Virginia, Colorado, all the way down to April. Wait, are you looking forward to getting out on the road with these guys and doing this?
1: Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? I mean, I get butterflies in my stomach just hearing you talk about it. So – all of the, if you want to see like where the tour's at right now, just go to nolatet.com because the booking agent just added a ton of dates. Cool. So it definitely just, it just got real, it just got real plump. It just got real fat. So, I mean the idea, I'm, I'm already, I'm already practicing the material now and the first show isn't until the 28th. I mean, I want to show up having all the shit memorized Plus, I've got a couple of new songs, so I'm going to show up in New Orleans a little bit early and hassle them and, like, sneak into James' place for a few hours, teach him the new music, go hang out with Johnny, go hang out with Mike Dillon. I'm beyond excited. I'm the youngster in the ensemble by, by 10 years, so, I mean, I'm going to show up and just make sure everything is completely nailed. That's cool, man. Let me, let me ask, let me, let me kind of go back your lineage a little bit.
2: You were raised in a suburb of Tulsa, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, is that correct? Uh Uh-huh. Talk to me a little bit about your childhood and how you
1: got so into music. Well, uh, my dad's mom uh, was considered one of the best pianists and organists in Oklahoma. Yeah. But my dad was adopted, so I didn't get any of her genetics, unfortunately, but I did get her example. I mean... I grew up around my grandmother who was, who lived in Tulsa and was a total socialite and had this incredible condominium and they had money and, and they had, she had an incredible Hammond organ set up in the main room of her house and everything was built around the Hammond organ. I mean, they built a bar around her Hammond organ. The Hammond organ was put up high, sort of on a stage, and then she sat up high on a stool. And like I said, they had a bar specifically built because of their g- generation, you know, it's all about cocktails and, you know, and like whiskey on ice and all that kind of shit. And so they were, they were socialites, and, and my grandmother was an, was an entertainer. I mean, even as her professional career phased out, her socialite thing ramped up. And, I mean, I remember being a kid and going over there and hearing all these jazz standards being sung by my grandmother and her friends. They would all gather around the organ and sit at the bar and just drink and and sing. And so I grew up thinking that that was the best party I'd ever seen. I mean, my grandmother was a way better pianist or an organist than I could ever be, and just she was a better musician. She was more natural, like, she She's one of those people that had total recall in all twelve keys. Yeah uh, She could hear any song once. I mean, even the most difficult, bizarre whatever. Chick Corea, Coltrane, any, uh, imagine something with way too many chords. My grandmother could hear it once and play it in all 12 keys, and she thought I was the biggest moron on earth that I couldn't do that. She was like, well, you you play piano. I mean, you're sitting at the piano all day. Why can't you do this? And I'm like, grandmother, you don't understand. You're the only person I know on earth who can do this shit. <laughs> she just, I mean, she thought I was the biggest moron you could ever imagine. Yeah. Um. And so she was my example I mean, and she was like a world class musician i mean i mean i'm still I still kind of marvel at what she was doing in the week leading up to her death. I mean, she basically played her organ in the nursing home until she died wow. and and as she got older she could she would kind of she was kind of losing her mind a little bit, and she would just sit at the organ and segue from standard to standard to standard in any key she could do i mean she could do anything anything. Wow. Her left foot on the bass pedals on the organ, she did like this heel-toe technique. I mean, she's the fastest, best bassist I've ever seen as far as that style of like playing, you know, the right foot goes on the volume pedal, the left foot goes on the on the bass notes. I've never really seen anybody do what she did. So that was really my main inspiration growing up, but I was considered a young classical prodigy. Um, I couldn't really, it took me years to be able to figure out the pop language, the jazz language, the blues language, because I was raised from a very young age playing Beethoven and Bartok and Prokofiev and Mozart and all that stuff. So she would, anytime I would try to improvise, she would just say, oh, that's terrible. Just don't quit your day job. Just keep playing classical. Please just keep playing classical. I'd go try to play her organ and my grandmother would be like, please don't play my organ. You sound terrible. Just stick with piano. You don't know how to play organ. You don't know how to play jazz. Just please stop and just focus on your classical music. So she was, like, simultaneously encouraging and discouraging the entire time she was alive. Or I should say the entire time I knew her as a young man. She loved the classical stuff. She showed up at every one of my concerts. You know, I won concerto competitions. I got to play with the Tulsa Symphony Orchestra. And, I mean, she was at every one of those shows. But if I would try to branch out, she'd say, no, 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 please don't do that. Please don't do that.
2: Well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting segue, because that was what question I was going to ask you. Since you started out so early on, and you've had so many gigs, in the very beginning, were you nervous when you were performing, or is it just natural for you to get on stage?
1: I used to be more nervous uh, when it came to classical music. Yeah. But as I got older, I learned, you know, when I was still in high school, I started changing my diet. I was very sick um, as a teenager, so I started changing my diet because I wanted to cut out a piece of my colon when I was like 16 years old, and I was like, well, hold on, wait, what if I stop drinking 10 Dr. Peppers a day? Uh-huh. They were like, oh, this is not going to do anything. No, that's not going to work. You need to have your colon cut out. And so I... uh at a very, Really, at a pretty young age, I started changing my diet, working on my breathing. As I got into my teens, I became way less nervous. Playing That's part of why I started improvising and playing jazz, because I could do it with no nervousness. As I got older, jazz started to seem way more natural to me than classical music. So part of why I switched to jazz was because I got so sick Of the pressure of the competition circuit, which I started doing at a pretty young age. I mean, to become a professional concert pianist, you have to do the competition circuit, which is bewildering and super political and sort of nerve-wracking. And that's part of why I got out of it. I mean, I started preparing for the 97 Van Cliburn competition like 10 years before the competition. So I was amassing huge amounts of material. I mean, I did my junior recital first semester of my freshman year. I did my senior recital second semester of my freshman year. Um, I mean I was competing yeah, I mean I was competing at a high level. I mean I was amassing hours upon hours of material. I mean it almost blew my freaking brain out. Um that's part of why I switched to improvise music was because I decided I wanted to be happy. And I mean I had to break up with the professor I'd been studying with since I was 15. He had given me a full ride to the University of Tulsa. That's the only reason I went there. I never even applied to a single other school or looked at a single other school because when you're in that classical world, you're expected to stick with your your main teacher. You just stick with them blindly. You don't go looking. If it's working and you're winning competitions and you're on a track, you just stick with the guy. So I had to break up with this guy. I mean, it took, like, weeks to break up with him. Yeah. It was like breaking up with a girlfriend. I mean, he was crying. I had to break up with him and explain, I will not, you cannot ride your dreams on my back anymore, sir. Like, I will not be this guy for you. He couldn't believe it. He thought that, I mean, he, his career was sort of riding on me, too. So you make this
2: switch to jazz. Let me ask you this. Was there a jazz album that kind of blew you away when you really started listening to it that was a big moment for you?
1: That's a difficult question because the guy who really got me playing jazz was Jacob Fred's first drummer, Sean Layton, who had heard me as a high schooler in the practice rooms and told me I was wasting my time spending all this time playing other people's music when I could be playing my own. So, I mean, Sean was a genius. He eventually killed himself um, in the late 90s, but Sean was really like the avatar, the guru of early Jacob Fred lineage. I mean, Sean had me listening to so much jazz when I was a high schooler. I mean, that's a really, really difficult question. He would come get me after my lessons with Dr. Price and make me go over to his apartment w- with him and it made me feel kind of weird. It was like, why is this guy so focused on me? But then I realized it was because he wanted to play music with me and he wanted me to stop playing classical music. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember when I was 16, he played Bitches Brew for me made me sit there and listen to the entire thing. And I hated it. He played it for me when I was 17 one year later, and I thought it was the most brilliant thing I'd ever heard. I mean, he had me listening to everything you could imagine. He had the, like, most prestigious scholarship you could ever get to the University of Tulsa. They had to discontinue it. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you get, like, a 1000 a month stipend, and he was spending it all on CDs. And he worked at a record store. His CD collection... Was unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. It was it was a library of information. So there wasn't just one thing. Right. Um, it was just a gradual process of my mind kind of opening to it. But man, my early jazz listening—I'm talking hundreds, if not thousands, of albums.
2: Well, and obviously that lent to you making and and the sound that you guys have with Jacob Fred is amazing. I mean, the a mincing of Jazz, hip-hop, funk, rock, I mean, there's so much going on. I know that Mike Dillon was an influence, as you said, but how did all of this come together? How did all your minds come in and say, bam, this is the sound we're going to do?
1: Really, that early sound, the sound of the 90s was a happy accident. I mean, I started listening to a ton of Ornette Coleman's Prime Time. I started listening to Steve Coleman and the Five Elements. I've always been more influenced by saxophonists than pianists. I find that most pianists are still recovering from Herbie even today, like all these pianists that are so lauded and, oh, they're so brilliant. They just, to me, it sounds like whitewashed Herbie. I think most pianists are still recovering from Herbie Hancock. I find that most people are just playing Herbie licks in one way or another. They're, you know, it's where transcribing and transcriptions go wrong. You start to become that thing and you can't get past it. I've always been more into saxophonists. I mean, my main hero is John Coltrane. When I wake up and I feel weird and I can't remember why I've devoted my life to this one thing. All I do is put on a Coltrane album and I remember why I do what I do. So in the 90s, I was super influenced by Steve Coleman and Ornette Coleman, really influenced by the primetime albums, like how free, but how electric and funky. And the same with the Steve Steve Coleman stuff was like the opposite of the Ornette Coleman primetime albums. The Steve Coleman stuff was super influenced by classical music, super written out, super overthought, super pedantic, but I loved them both, and so that really helped shape the early sound of Jacob Fred. I mean, for better or worse, Jacob Fred has always been my brainchild. I really started the band to learn how to play jazz. I never really thought it would take off. I started it so that I could hang out with the eight best guys in the school of music, and they could teach me how to play jazz. I didn't off as a proficient jazzer in any way shape or form I really started off as a very mediocre student of jazz the early sound relied heavily on the other guys because I was just really trying to learn from them I mean I remember first time we played knitting factory in 96 some of the most scared I've ever been in my entire life and the show was completely freaking packed and everybody loved it and everybody's like oh I love how you're not adhering to traditional forms and how you sound like shit on the piano. We love it. <laughs> I mean, I just, and I mean, I just feel like I always approached it in a different way because I was never that good at it. I just did what I could do, you know. I'm So, I mean, really, I, I guess I'm just, I've always been sort of a natural band leader just kind of on accident. I didn't really, I didn't know that I would be good at doing that but I like putting people together. Um, I'm a very positive person. I enjoy encouraging people, and I seem to kind of bring something different out in people. And they don't always love it, but it's like people always come in and play to Jacob Fred, play for Jacob Fred. People kind of lose their identity in the band. And, you know, we've had 16 different band members in 22 years, and that's the only reason the band still exists, is because of all the... Cats that are way better than I am coming in and offering their thing, and then it makes me better, makes the band better, and um, it's just—it's been a really humble process. But the none of it has been on purpose. That's I think why it's—it's always kind of worked. I've we've never really, with the exception of the Race Riot Suite, I would say that's the one exception. That was very intentional, very on purpose. That was all written by Combs. Really, I would describe our sound as a happy accident
2: you've been with jacob fred since 94 you just released your 27th album tell me what has been the greatest thing about being a part of this band for all
1: these years all the other band members that's definitely the greatest thing would have to be all the other band members um i mean so many people have given everything to this band so i don't there's no way the band would still be together without the other uh, Cats, you know. Um, everybody that's come into the ensemble has brought so much to the table. I mean, like I told you, I started the band to really learn how to play jazz, and I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, there's <laughs> everybody that's been in the band has taught me so much and contributed so much. It, it, would, it would have to be all the other band members and just all the fans. I mean, my gosh, we've played all over the world multiple times, toured Europe seven years in a row, huge tours, and just, I don't know, we just have a lot of really devoted fans who have given, you know, who give of themselves, who've the shows, who I send handbills and posters to, and they promote and work and tell people about the band, and, yeah, I mean, it would have to be the fans and the band members. So let me ask you this, what's the nicest thing a fan has ever said to you? That's a good question, I mean... So many people feel like Jacob Fred has directly contributed to their love of life. You know, I mean, people, true fans will say the craziest shit after they've had a couple of beers, after an unbelievable, you know, after a powerful show. I mean, the 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 real fans will will tell us that it it changes their life. You know, and I mean that's that's the biggest compliment you can get is that somehow you've impacted these people's existence. That's huge. I mean, you know, I mean, there was a guy who came to a few of the shows on the last tour in the fall who said Jacob Fred has become music for people who don't like music anymore. He said that Jacob Fred, he said he didn't hear one musical cliché the entire night he said he didn't hear one lick or riff. He said everything that he heard was completely brand new for two hours, and Jacob Fred is music for people who hate music. <laughs> Which That's I awesome. Like, wow, man. Can I quote you on that and, like, put that up on the website? And <laughs> he was like, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> he's a recording engineer. He's in the yeah. music business. He's, quite, he's actually quite well known. That's great. That's a great quote.
2: Let me ask you this. As somebody that has dedicated your life to music and to jazz, and in our sense we're talking more specifically about jazz, tell me why why do you love jazz?
1: Because of the risk. Not just the risk on stage, but the risk off stage to make the capitalism work. I love living on the edge, and some people do that by skydiving or putting on... Suits with wings and jumping off of mountains, I do it by forcing my capitalism to shape itself around art. So, you know, some people shoot up heroin or go do acid and wander around the mountains. Like, I play jazz. <laughs> <laughs> people will ask me, well, 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 we're up here in Blue Lake, Ontario. don't you want to come gamble? I was, and I just say... My entire life is a gamble. Every day is a gamble. I don't need to gamble. I don't need to go to casinos or play the stock market or go bungee jumping. Like, I play jazz for a living. That's the riskiest gamble I could imagine.
2: Yeah. <laughs> True. Absolutely. You know, it, it's very evident that you're a pretty – you're you're very self-evolved, very happy individual, uh, very fulfilled individual. What is your key to staying and brimming with life and,
1: and, and doing what you do? I'd have to say hard work and discipline. I mean, happiness isn't an accident. Happiness is, uh, happiness is a choice. Happiness is, is hard work. I mean, evolving on this planet, being happy on this planet, being grateful, these are things that take – They take work. So, you know, today I woke up with a throbbing headache and my ribs hurting, and so I went next door and I meditated for 23 minutes. I mean, meditation takes work. Deep breathing takes work. Yoga is work. But the result of the hard work is the happiness. I, I don't think happiness is, you know, something that's found externally. Happiness is something that we have to conjure from the inside out and it takes hard work
2: you know the one thing you mentioned when you need to remind yourself about loving music you talked about coltrane so i'm going to ask you in this fantasy realm if you could get into that jazz delorean and go back in time punch the digits and go back to a place who would you go see and where would you go
1: i mean i'd go back to the village vanguard and listen to coltrane for the initial Vanguard recording, and then for the Vanguard again. There's so, you know, he did those two Vanguards. He did the first one, and then he did the Revisited. I mean, I'd go on Coltrane tour. I'd go try to hear Coltrane every night. Within the, the field of music, I don't, very few people have embodied that Buddha consciousness, that Gandhi consciousness, that Christ consciousness. I don't think anybody's come close to Coltrane. I mean, I think he was a living... I mean, I know he was just a normal man who was addicted to sugar and other things, you know, but at the same time, when he played, like, when you know, I have a record player and I mostly listen to Coltrane on vinyl. What What I hear is higher consciousness. I don't quite know how to say it. Like, I don't totally... Listen to music for the notes or the harmonies or the compositions. I enjoy that. Those things are superficial, though, compared to the spirituality that comes from listening to music. Like, I don't read the Bible. I listen to Coltrane. I listen to music for the consciousness. I enjoy the harmonies and the chords and the notes and the phrasing, and, but all that's incidental compared to the spirit. So that's why I bring up Coltrane. For me, it's about spirituality and true, true depth. Anything with Coltrane comes on, I turn that shit up so loud and I put my head right by the speakers and it changes my life. Right then, my life is changed. Yeah. You know? Yep, absolutely. It all depends on where you're at in your life, you know? I don't give a shit about notes.
2: Hey, man, thank you again,
1: Brian. Stay cool, and I'm looking forward to keeping up with your career as it goes on. It's a good one. Hey, man, thanks for doing what you're doing. We need more people like you on this planet.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the coolest players and greatest cats in New York, Casey, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Brian for his towering creativity, contributions to music, the jazz, the wisdom, and everything else, baby. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe DeMino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends.
1: Neon Jazz